As a CFO, you also typically have a you know best overall picture of the financial health of the company. You know, in terms of monthly financials, cash flow, budgeting projections. So all in all, you have to actually bring all this together and all these ties together in terms of your overall strategy, right? How you're gonna grow, where you're headed. So I think you actually have a quite an integral role to you know better communicate this overall picture to other key stakeholders of the firm. Welcome to CFO Talks by Aspire, a podcast where we showcase leaders who are bringing finance back to the driving seat of their company's growth in Southeast Asia and beyond, from fundraising to M&A, to regional expansion and leveraging new technologies to give your company a competitive edge. Find out from Southeast Asia's top finance leaders themselves. I'm your host, Joel, and welcome to CFO Talks. Hi, everyone, and welcome to CFO Talks. Today, we're speaking with Cho Weihao, the CFO of Una Brands, one of Asia's leading e-commerce startups. Cho has had a very interesting career so far, from starting off in the Singapore Armed Forces to spending close to a decade in the financial sector, and more recently being a senior director of Razer, one of the world's leading gaming and consumer brands. Today, Cho is the CFO of Una Brands, a rapidly growing e-commerce company with a very unique business model. The company is behind modern-day global household brands such as Ergotune and Everdesk. And we'll dig deeper into what that entails. But first, Cho, would you tell us a bit more about yourself? Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm currently CFO of Una Brands, a leading e-commerce tech startup in Southeast Asia. Personally, for me, I was born and raised in Singapore. So growing up, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Parents would teach us about businesses, the intricacies of entrepreneurship. School-wise, I was educated in NTU, Nanyang Technology University, doing banking finance, and uh, did my MBA in the University of Chicago, both uh, in the US. On a professional capacity, I was a captain in the Singapore military and spent close to a decade uh, in finance, mainly investment banking with Credit Suisse in New York, as well as the Singapore offices. So in that role, I saw firsthand how tech is changing the world, particularly in Southeast Asia, changing the way people live, uplifting lives. And I decided to make the transition to the tech world, first via Razer, one of the OG uh, tech unicorns from Singapore, where I was senior director and led corporate development and investments. Uh, as part of the role, I invested in uh, startups globally and uh, played a role in the value creation and bringing it into Razer's global ecosystem. I subsequently transitioned to Una Brands from there. In my free time, I enjoy spending time with my family, my kids. I enjoy playing sports a lot, football, uh, volunteering, as well as traveling. I love to dive a little bit into sort of the journey of how you, you know, ended up here in, in Una Brands today. I think you spent a little bit of time in the SAF and after that moved to investment banking. Yeah. Uh, where, where you mentioned got exposed to tech or, you know, were interested or saw the, the first-hand effect of tech. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I guess firstly, when I look back at my my career in my time in the military that really developed a lot about the what we call the leadership teamwork aspect of, of things right and growing up uh, even in student bodies in schools I was part of the boys brigade for a long time captain the football team so I think that part about leadership and team environment has always been a big part of me on the kind of more business or finance front I think I've always been quite interested in businesses and finance. In NTU, I did finance and I went to, you know, one of the more data-driven finance school at uh, University of Chicago Booth, uh, where they always joke where fun goes to die, right? So a lot of academics and, and studying. Professional career-wise, um, especially at Credit Suisse, 
uh, in my time there uh, in US and Singapore, I was able to partner with very senior executives at large Fortune 500 companies, startups. You know, I really see how uh, firsthand how the right strategic transactions and funding can be actually very transformative for business. In my time there as well, it brought me to do deals all over the world from, you know, Singapore to Middle East, South Asia, China, across Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Vietnam, many different countries. So also allowed me to kind of develop that uh, global mindset. But I think more importantly, as mentioned, it allowed me front row seat, right, to really see how the tech scene in Southeast Asia was uh, evolving. So I think today we are at quite an inflection point where the Southeast Asia tech ecosystem is. And also you can see day to day, right, how our everyday lives are changing, you know, mm. how we order food, how we buy things online, uh, and also up the point about uplifting lives, right? How, for example, financial inclusion plays like emerging markets like yep. Indonesia, for instance. So I think that to me is very impactful and meaningful. And I want to be part of the entrepreneurship and digital transformation in the region. And was that what led you to Razor? I mean, how, how did that happen? How do you make the transition, right? It's quite significant, I guess. Firstly, I think um, switching out from banking is, you know, always on a lot of bankers' mind, right? And <laughs> For me, it's been something that I was thinking about. Um, and the real catalyst, I would say, is actually COVID. Uh, when COVID oh, okay. hit yeah, in, in, in 2020, uh, I think that was when, you know, for a lot of us, really, right, it's really a time where you can uh, take a pause, think about life and, you know, what is really matters. And I think that led me to think about, you know, what I was sharing earlier about being part of the digital transformation in the region. Uh, Razor in particular uh, is actually a... A client of Credit Suisse. So that was okay. how, uh, and there were many kind of different connections, and that was how I, I was introduced uh, first into the role. I was also taking over someone uh, who was headhunted to go to become a CFO of Carousel, actually. So it kind of oh. all, all fell into place, you know, many different uh, pieces falling into place there. So at Razor, you know, obviously the co-founder, CEO, very well known, in especially in this part of the world, right? So learning from him, being part of the Razor journey uh, has been great for me. Right, and and at Razor, you you mentioned you kind of shifted industry, but technically you was you you were on the investment side of, of Razor. Was that correct? In my role at Razor, two main roles. I think one part is leading corporate development, where it was more about uh, M and A transactions. It was more about strategic transactions uh, projects. I think the other big part of the role was uh, running a fund off the balance sheet of Razor Corporate VC. Right, so I was also investing and in startups globally and helping them uh, grow, introducing that. Actually, one of the startups that invested in just got an uh, announced a successful exit as well. Are you able to share the name of the, oh, Loop the startup? Loop okay. Deck. Yeah, so they, they actually got acquired by Logitech. Oh, yeah, wow. So they just announced like recently. At this time, Razor is yep. really quite a mature company, right? So being able to do something which you know, I've been doing all along at Credit Suisse allowed the transition for me to more seamlessly transition into the tech scene. And uh, and how, how did the transition then happen next, right? How did you end up at, at Una Brands? At the time at Razor, um, because of my time kind of investing and being plugged into the Southeast Asia uh, tech ecosystem, right? I think it allowed me the opportunity to know a lot more people, a lot more startups, interactions with startups, VCs. Uh, and as part of the journey, you know, you, you are introduced to, to a lot more opportunities. So during my time there, this opportunity with uh, Una Brands emerged. They were looking for a CFO, uh, somebody with uh, investment banking experience, right, to co-lead the company with the CEO. 
right? CEO founder Kiran is ex-founder of uh, Food Panda and, and whatnot. They wanted somebody with more investment banking background because in particular, the Una Brands business model actually involves acquisitions, a mm-hmm. roll-up play. So it's a natural fit uh, in that sense. I'm almost uh, amazed at how seamless the, the transitions have been for you and, and you know, in a way, it, it makes a lot of sense. So when, when did you join Una Brands? Uh, how big was the company at the time that you joined and take us through that journey? Time at Una is, I guess, is, is flying, I guess, when you're having fun, right? It's been close to two years now. So when I first joined, it was a very small team, um, growing really, really quickly. So I think over the course, perhaps over the last 12 months, I would say, um, it's been really roller coaster, right? You know what they say about the time in a, in a startup. Like every day is every day is different. You have different fire to fire every day. One day you ex- you know experience extreme ecstasy. Next day you think the world is going to end. Right. Uh, I I think you know with you as well. Uh, yeah. The world has really changed ever since I would say early twenty twenty two. Right. But I think one of the big catalysts was the Ukraine war happening and uh, markets started to to tumble. Kind mm-hmm. of a reset of valuation. Right. So, I mean, to me, in a startup world, when things, when, you know, macro environment is bad and all, you, is, you, the, the, the effects is really amplified maybe 10 times, right? Yeah. So for us, I think we have been quite fortunate. In the last 12 months, we still managed to raise uh, twice, uh, oh, wow. Series B and pre-Series C. So our backers, Alpha JWC, White Star Capital and North Star. So very fortunate to have uh, good backers. We have also managed to readjust our strategy. Uh, as we know, in the old world, I think the mantra was really capital was freely available. It was growth at all costs and, and whatnot. I think now the, the mentality is very different, right? Now you always have to weigh kind of trade-off between growth and profitability, mm-hmm. a lot of focus on uh, uh, cash runway, conservation, cash burn. I think a lot of people are hunkering down and building and refocusing on what they're good at. So that's something that we have been doing as well. For the sake of our audience, maybe you can share a little bit about Una Brands and its unique take on e-commerce, right? You guys are not your typical e-commerce company. Uh, Maybe for the viewers who don't know, maybe you can give them some insight. Una Brands is a leading e-commerce tech startup in Southeast Asia. We are headquartered in Singapore. We have six offices, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, China, India, as well as Australia. So we are mostly focused on Asia. What they will call us in terms of business model is kind of like a house of brands. So today we have over 20 brands, the most prominent or iconic being Ergotune and Everdesk, which is actually one of the leading ergonomic chair and standing table brands in Singapore. We are omni-channel and sell across marketplaces uh, in Southeast Asia, for instance, Shopee, Lazada, Amazon, as well as more recently, TikTok Shop, uh, which is actually making a big uh, uh, entrance, uh, particularly in Indonesia. We also do direct to consumer and overall a bit of offline as well. So truly omni-channel. I would say overall the e-commerce landscape, particularly in Southeast Asia, is is, is really changing, right, and evolving. And today the way consumers shop, the expectations are all evolving. So to be an effective e-commerce company in Southeast Asia, you really have to be tech-driven. There's something also quite unique about being this house of brands where you don't necessarily start all these brands yourself from ground zero, right? Probably that's also where your experience from investments and you being the CFO, uh, you're, you're very heavily involved in this process. Can you tell us a little bit more 
about what I'm alluding to, I guess. The model is, is not new in the sense that it's, it's the, what they will call a typical roll-up play, right? Uh, in terms of having kind of a pool of capital, and instead of building everything from the ground up, you go out and acquire good and profitable brands or companies. I think the genesis of this happened in the US where, you know, I think number one, what they realized is that uh, there are a lot of uh, very good brands and businesses out there, for example, selling on Amazon, right? And I think individual brand owners, um, they have capabilities to grow the brand to a certain size or scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and limited capabilities to, to do anything more. Uh, so having the roll-up and putting them together, you can derive, um, you know, what you say, synergies uh, on that basis. I think the second big development then was the availability of capital, right? As we know, capital was readily available and you can use that quickly grow uh, from an inorganic mm -hmm. basis. So I think how I would think about the business model is twofold, right? One is really a multiple arbitrage play, right? Uh, being that, you know, you can raise capital potentially at a, a higher multiple and, mm -hmm. and then thereafter acquiring these businesses at a much uh, lower uh, multiple. I would say the second part of the business model is really the value creation part, which I was alluding to earlier about the synergies, right? So at Una Brands, for instance, uh, we have a lot of centralized teams. Uh, for instance, the operations team, the finance team, the marketing team, and these are be able to more efficiently uh, run the brands, for instance, right? And yep. apply cross learnings. We also have, uh, again, more global mindset and different teams in different parts of the world. And so right after you, let's say we acquire a brand, uh, for instance, the Ergotune brand, right? The Singapore. So when we acquired them, they were mainly selling in Singapore. And right after we acquired them, we actually immediately brought them to Australia, brought them to the mm. US, right? So that growth lever is, is very apparent. And I think the last point will be about the tech platform that we've built, right? Uh, as mentioned, today, you know, to be an e-commerce company, you have to be tech-driven, right? So using a bit of, you know, AI, machine learning to uh, better understand your consumers, to do outreach, right? Uh, to be more easily uh, for our brand managers to manage the brands across different channels because it's, it's very complicated, right? To maybe open different tabs, right? To adjust prices in, in different marketplaces, right? You know, the, the second part of it is also, like you mentioned, value creation, which I think, you know, ties into the thing you saw back in your investment banking days where you, you know, provide uh, that where, where technology has an impact on the end consumer, provides that uplift in quality of living and so on. What are some of the brands that you've successfully acquired and value added and what do you guys do after that? Well, I think the value creation um, process actually cuts across all our brands. Probably the way to, to frame it would be firstly on maybe the revenue growth levers. So for us, there are a couple of uh, growth levers when we think about adding value to the company. I think one would be, uh, especially earlier, the kind of the country expansion, right? So being able to expand to a different country uh, it's actually not that straightforward. You may think it's, it's, it's easy, right? But it uh, involves many different things, right? It, may, it involves capital, involves knowledge of the local market, involves or how are you going to ship your product there? Do you open a warehouse in the local country? Do you use the 3PL to, to do that? So all these requires a lot of knowledge, which mentioned individual brand owners may not necessarily have. Let's say, for example, they are an individual seller in, let's say, in Malaysia or Singapore, uh, and they are, they are quite young, may not have the uh, have not explored overseas before, 
So they may not think of uh, businesses uh, from that perspective. So we are able to to help them do that. I think the other part of the growth part of, of things, the revenue growth part of things will be product innovation, for instance, right? So for us, we actually have a, a core kind of product innovation team that has experience innovating on products. Let's say you, we see what your hero, what we call the hero SKU, the best selling product is, mm-hmm. how we can potentially keep adding value, how we can create something not too different, but uh, something which can build upon the, the capabilities or the, the key traits of the original SKU as well. So we have a product innovation team that constantly innovates and I would say that it's been very, very successful so far. And today actually new products uh, makes up like 20 or 30% of our revenue overall. So I think that that is a big uh, revenue growth driver for us. Well, that's, um, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting metric to track for, for value add addedness as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. That is a, a core kind of focus for us. I think on the cost side, it's maybe a bit more obvious given uh, our centralized teams and operations. We are able to more better run or run things more efficiently. Take finance for yeah. instance, right? Uh, finance, we are able to run the different brands across a very lean and efficient team. And why we can do that is because in the finance function, for instance, uh, we have what we call enable a lot of digital transformation, uh, looked at automation. And for instance, like on, on NetSuite, right? we're already on NetSuite today. We are a two-year company. We have already used wow. NetSuite and we have you, you know, used our tech team to, to automate a lot of the processes. So the finance team doesn't have to do all the manual reconciliation and funding and whatnot. And uh, you know, nice. startups like yeah. Aspire as well is also trying to help that, right? Enable companies to be more efficient in the sense. So that's something which, um, you know, as my role as uh, CFO of the company, uh, I think it's also a big part about, you know, pushing digital transformation. How do I make people more efficient uh, in, in their time? How do you measure the ROI and the impact of using capital to deploy, right? For instance, investing in the tech team, investing in, you know, third-party software to make things more efficient. Nice. I, I like to segue into that as CFO. What does your day-to-day look like? What, you know, how would you split your time or your individual functions or buckets? If I think about traditional functions uh, within the company, I kind of lead the, of course, the finance function. Uh, I lead the corporate development and investments function. I lead the, I kind of look at strategy and, and whatnot as well. Obviously, we also have a very strong team of uh, senior of executives. Yep. Uh, there's other co-founders uh, of the team as well. Okay. Uh, maybe the, the, the title is perhaps a, maybe more a function of age and, and how, <laughs> how old, how old I, I am, perhaps. We all kind of work very well together. Um, there's... You know, in a startup, it's very lean, right? It's not very hierarchical. So yeah, absolutely. everyone is working together and bringing the company forward. Um, maybe back to your question about see how, you know, what role I'm playing as a CFO in a startup, right? Perhaps historically, back in the day, I always thought of the CFO as somebody more of a custodian of assets, for instance, right? More like a compliance type role, right? You know, balancing the books, making sure your treasury is like safeguarded, there's no fraud, right? Uh, my mm-hmm. dad was uh, actually a financial controller with more accounting type background and he would share similar stories with me. Uh, however, I do think that uh, today the CFO role has evolved in this uh, digital age, uh, particularly in the tech startup, right? First of all, I think CFOs today has to play a much larger role in terms of driving strategic direction of the company you know, together with the CEO and other senior executives, right? As a CFO, 
you are typically in a very unique position in terms of access to information and, and what you do. So for instance, um, for me, for instance, I'm driving a lot of the fundraising, both equity and debt investors, right? And understanding the availability of capital, right? How much resources you have, because that's, that's imperative for, for startup, yeah. right? Um, so driving a lot of the investor relations and, you know, understanding the different uh, demands and expectations of investors, because they can be different, right? For instance, different equity investors coming in at different stages have different expectations and wants, and especially debt investors as well could have a different set of expectations. As a CFO, you also typically have a, you know, best, I want to say, overall picture of the financial health of the company, you know, in terms of monthly financials, cash flow, budgeting projections, right? So all in all, you have to actually bring all this together uh, and all these ties together in terms of your overall strategy, right? How are you going to grow, where you're headed, right? So I think you actually have a quite an integral role to, you know, better communicate this overall picture to other key stakeholders of the firm. As CFO, you can again play a big role in terms of how demonstrating the ROI of you know being data driven, boosting productivity can be beneficial for the overall company, right? And I, I talked about how we are automating a lot of the NetSuite functions, freeing up time, just for like for sort of a finance function, right? Being able to do more value adding roles, the more let's say FP&A roles, or being an effective business partner to the brand managers, not mm -hmm. just spending your time balancing books, for instance. I think that is quite critical. Yeah, no, tell me a little bit more about that, uh, you know, business partner to the brand or the brand managers. Do you or your finance team have that model where you, you actually partner up in that way? When we first started, uh, I would say, you know, back, back in the day, we were kind of building our processes. So it was more of, okay, ledger balance, making sure your monthly reporting is there, making mm -hmm. sure you pay your pay your invoices, right? Suppliers, everything. It's a very, very basic kind of function, right? But as we evolve, uh, as we build up more processes, as we expansion, build up automation and using more software, right? Making things more efficient. Then it frees up the time for kind of finance team, for instance, the, to be able to partner with uh, business leaders, function heads, to really help them deep dive a bit into what does interpret what does uh, you know the data or financial metrics mean for instance maybe deep diving a bit into the SKUs right or how what are the SKUs how much do they cost right doing like an SKU analysis or for instance uh, looking at oh okay previously you were using uh, this logistics provider you were having this warehouse should you actually own the warehouse or should you use uh, what we call 3PL, third-party mm -hmm. logistics, right? And making them, I guess, working with them to, to better understand the numbers because for finance, they can't do it in isolation also, right? They don't really have the, the full commercial or, or business lens that they need from the business side as well. So I would say it's a partnership. Nice, nice. And, uh, you know, as a CFO, what keeps you up at night? What would you say is the biggest problem you're trying to solve today? Well, as I was sharing um, earlier in the call, I would say that today, the the climate is very different from the pre-war, pre-crash days, right? I would say a lot of things on my mind is surrounding number one, availability of capital, right? I think that's on a lot of CFO or a lot of companies' mind, right? Are you able to raise funds? Are you able to have sufficient buffer? I think what people yeah. say nowadays is you have to at least solve for one and a half to two and a half 
or three-year runway, right? Because yeah. of the uncertainty of the outlook. So right, but I think you guys are actually in an interesting position there, right? Because given your model, technically, I mean, I would imagine that as a smaller brand, that may be an even bigger challenge for them, right? You maybe, you know, and, and that arbitrage that you talked about, is that actually in some ways, even though the capital raising environment is harder, but actually gives you guys a, a bit of a competitive edge as well. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point And it's absolutely right, right? Because... For us, given we are a roll-up player and you know we've been thankful that you know in the last year we have been able to fundraise. So we actually have a war chest of capital. And when we look at brands, uh, for instance, brands in the region, Southeast Asia, right? Um, the availability of acquirers is actually a lot less today. So we have seen multiples actually yeah. come down. And that is counterintuitively actually put us in a better yeah. position when we you know approach these brands, when we try to structure the deal. So you're right in the sense that it does, you know, put us in a better position from a brand acquisition perspective. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the second big thing that is on my mind a lot is about the trade-off, right? For our model, if we were to buy the right brand, uh, obviously the, the revenue will grow, right? It's an inorganic uh, basis. And most of the time, if you again buy the correct brand, right, uh, you also help in terms of profitability. So I think a bit weighing the trade-off between, oh, do you use your available cash to acquire the brand? Or do you be a bit more conservative in terms of cash conservation and say that, hey, we hunker down and be a bit more conservative first? Yep. When the overall macro environment improves, when you have more certainty on the availability of capital down the road, then you go more aggressive in terms of growth and acquiring brands. So that's right. that's like a big trade-off that we will have to weigh yeah. on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and let's talk about this second point that you mentioned, right? This whole trade-off between profitability and, and growth. Like, um, as a company, you know, what are some of the things you guys have done or based on the way that you're, you're looking at this? Mm, I would say that we... We monitor that uh, very closely and we debate that, I would say, every other day or, or, or weekly, right? So it's actually... So so what, is, so what is it for you now? Is it profitability or is it growth? On yeah, no, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's a difficult one and involves a lot of stakeholder management and getting buy-ins, right? Because as mentioned, for instance, um, what your equity investor want may be different from what your debt investor want. Mm-hmm. What your brand manager want because of their KPI may be different from what, you know, let's say your finance team wants, right? So there are many different competing demands and, and what how people are incentivized, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, right? So I think as, as you know, senior executive with the firm, you know, with the CEO, we really have to weigh those and to assess, okay, the overall condition of the business, the macro climate, given everything that's, you know, you know about different stakeholders, which was kind of what uh, I was alluding to, right, earlier. You have to manage stakeholders appropriately, be an effective leader in terms of communicating better and to make different parties understand why you're making certain decisions. Today, I would say, in general, we are definitely a lot more focused on profitability, right? Focusing on cash flow, cash burn. Cool. And, you know, having been now on the, I guess you would call it more execution side for a while compared to your investment days. What has changed for you? Do you miss the, those old days? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, startup life or entrepreneurship, we discussed this earlier, right? It's really quite a roller coaster journey, right? For example, when I look at my time in investment banking, yes, hours were long. It was very stressful. 
Um, but I think your your job scope is a lot more well defined. Your target, you know, what you're working towards in terms of the deal completion is a lot clearer. Um, I would say in a startup world, entrepreneurship world, you are constantly wearing different hats, solving for different kind of outcomes, weighing trade-offs, inundated with data and you know very complex situations where it's not just data but human relations that you need to navigate. Mm. Right? I, I would say I, I really enjoy the experience so far and there's a lot of learning points, right? I think when I when I think about it, right, you know, being a CFO in a in a startup is is really a combination of what, what I would say maybe the hard and, and, and soft skills, right? I think for for hard skills it's a given, right? Finance, accounting, being data driven, analytical is, is super important. You know, but at the same time I think in my view, at least, the soft skills are even more critical. Being able to lead, being able to have, be a good team player, stakeholder management, building culture. I actually find myself leveraging a lot of my experience uh, back in more team environments or leadership roles, right? Because again, in a, in a startup, things are constantly evolving and there's, there's a lot of different situations to, to manage. Yeah. You know, for our listeners out there who are potentially aspiring CFOs or, or people looking to go into startup finance, hmm. do you have any sort of advice for them? Yeah, that's a good question, Joe. And you know, there are listeners out there that are thinking about the, the startup or entrepreneurial journey, right? Um, as I was sharing earlier, I think overall, you know, entrepreneurship is quite a roller coaster journey, right? There's different <laughs> fires to fight every day. But at the same time, I think it's important to, to note how also it can be extremely impactful uh, and rewarding as well. I think first, if you take a step back and you think about you know, how our lives has changed right in recent years through, say, mm. video tools such as you know, Zoom, social media, delivery platforms, you know, day-to-day, our lives have effectively changed and exacerbated by the, the, the COVID pandemic, right? And it's largely driven by entrepreneurs, visionaries, you know, who thought of the impossible before it actually happened. I think even if you look at, you know, double-clicking on Singapore, uh, where, where I'm from, right? Uh, we are a young nation, but, you know, when we first started, it's also the entrepreneur spirit, right? The numerous SME owners or, or Taukes, what they would mm. call that, propelled our growth, right? Southeast Asia startup ecosystem is at a very interesting uh, inflection point. And it can be a very impactful role to be part of the journey, right? Um, like how you can, again, uplift lives, financial inclusion, and really changing the way people live, right? For those thinking about it, think about it seriously and please do it. But I think two things I would kind of note, you know, before you, you dive in as well. Uh, one is it is tough, right? So very important to be ready uh, mentally and, and really emotionally, right? To know what, what it is, you know, having the resilience and determination to, to, to understand about it before you dive in. When once you're in, right, the day-to-day long hours and everything can be particularly grueling and important to, to have that ready. I think the, the second part is about, you know, being adaptable, right? And being able to be flexible in your approach, right? Being able to be okay with uncertainty. Because startup life is, ne- is never one straight linear line, right? Uh, how your company is evolving, how the macro environment is evolving, you have to constantly potentially change or pivot paths, right? So you must be uh, okay with, you know, uncertainty, okay to be flexible with your approach uh, in terms of coming to the best decision, the more rational, data-driven decision in terms of day-to-day decision-making. No, thanks so much for sharing. And, you know, with that, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Cho. Uh, really enjoyed learning about the unique model of Una Brands, you know, being this 
House of Brands. I think you took us a little bit through some of the more specific ways to look at M&A uh, that's embedded in your business model. I also really love the way that you shared how the finance function is evolving, kind of like a finance 2.0, where, you know, uh, structurally, you guys as Una Brands set up your finance function to be business partners with the many brands that you guys have. And, you know, I think also here, touching on the point of understanding different stakeholder needs, you know, working together as a team, which I think from, from the early days was something that was embedded in, in your experience, right? I love the fact that at the end of the day, you, you, you're also adding value both to the brands, but also I think at the end of the day to the consumer, the end consumer, right? Where you're impacting those lives through tech. So thanks so much again for sharing your, your journey. Uh, your wisdom and, and your insights. And thanks for being on CFO Talks. No, thanks, Joel and the Aspire team for having me. It's been a pleasure. Amazing. I uh, hope to catch you around soon. Once again, thanks for joining us on Aspire CFO Talks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and follow us and our guests on LinkedIn. That's it for this episode and we'll see you on the next CFO Talks. Talks.